0: Welcome to Take the Stage. I'm Alexis Alvarez with Career Rockstars. This is episode four of my special Ladies Who Rock series, dedicated to all those rockstar women who have progressed in industries or roles that have been historically underrepresented by women. You're going to learn who they are, their career paths, and most importantly, what makes them rock stars. Today on Take the Stage, our special Lady Who Rocks guest is Elizabeth Wadsworth. Elizabeth has spent 15 years working in finance, from investment banking to hedge funds to private equity. She deals strategically with executives and boards and builds successful cross-cultural teams. She has an impeccable track record of delivering success in a number of capacities, ranging from portfolio manager to board advisor within a number of sectors, including healthcare and real estate. And most recently, she is serving as an advisor at Paladin Capital, a lower middle market evergreen firm. Elizabeth, thank you for joining me. I am delighted to have you as my guest.
1: Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you, Alexis.
0: What I love about having you here today is that you are truly a woman of many layers. You're a writer, an investor, a board member, and above that, you are a woman who has been able to morph into leading finance and private equity roles, and you started with a poli sci major. Woo! So you've taken somewhat of a non-traditional path, which if you're new here, is something I love to talk about. And I know that you have some great insights from both a personal perspective as you've progressed throughout your career, but also from more of that advisory and executive angle, which is truly where you are uh, or rather where you really operate today. So I'm going to pass it off to you and have you start by shedding some light on that very intriguing journey (laughs) journey of yours. So Elizabeth, please take the stage.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And what great timing to be talking about careers and finance and making transitions. It seems like that's all anyone is talking about right now is making career transitions. You're right. I am an investor and a board director now, but I haven't always been. I spent about 15 years in finance as a portfolio manager and investment back banker. And my sector expertise was in real estate. But um, I would say the better part of the past five years, I've really been focused on governance issues. I'm an advocate for stewardship, and my passion is combining investment strategy with mission-aligned decision-making and good governance. After business school, I jumped in as an investment banker like so many of us do, and I worked through several parts of the economic cycle, and I saw a lot of deals, a lot of joint ventures and capital structures being done. But often there was a disconnect between the financial instruments that we recommended and the investment in the leadership team. And I spent years talking with executive teams about how they connect the two. And I realized the importance of good governance. As an investor, I'm investing in the leadership team and the people as much as in the widgets they produce there wasn't as broad an appreciation as i think there is now with esg but the investment community is definitely catching up i'm also a writer and an urban dweller and after one pandemic and 14 years of living here i'm also a semi fanatic of new york city
0: perfect perfect okay so let's let's start here let's talk about the wild card which here in my opinion is timing so you know of course in my role timing is key for placing candidates you have to be in the right place, both mentally and figuratively speaking. And it can seem like it was a process that many times it can feel like it was predetermined even before the opportunity was, was presented to you. So my question to you is, how important do you find timing to be when it comes to opportunities to leave for a new role? For you personally, when did you know it was the right time to make your next move?
1: Yeah, I think that's so true. Sometimes there are moves that we make that are planned, and sometimes it's more opportunistic. Uh, I've worked in a variety of organizations, both small and large on the advisory side and principal side, and I've had to make um, or got to make corporate moves many times. And I was given some really great advice pretty junior in my career, which is, you know it's time to leave when you can no longer find a leader or a manager within the organization that you can see yourself modeling or that whose shoes you want to fill at some point. But sometimes the next role that you need or the next role that I needed was actually within the same organization, not th- simply through getting that promotion, but something, some new um, position that really stretches you. I had one position in our group was it kind of absorbed, shall we say, into a larger Group and my mentor and advocate and boss moved on and, and boy, did I really want to leave the organization then. It would have been so easy. But I just had a feeling that the ways in which I would be stretched staying in the organization was actually gonna be more helpful to me. And that's exactly what happened. I ended up leading teams, I worked with corporate boards, and I eventually found my next role outside the organization. And all of this helped me transition from being in the weeds and really detail-oriented to growing and thinking at a more strategic level. And I, you know, I didn't plan that it happened to me, but how I reacted to it is what mattered. But, you know, you also talked about mentally being in the right place. And I feel like that's the perfect segue, which is to say, I am an advocate for the role of networking in everyone's career, no matter how junior you are finance is fundamentally a people business because transactions require trust between two parties or three parties or four parties. And there's only really one way to build trust. And that is through having that connection and networking is a big piece of it. Networking is not a dirty word. You can start really simple, use your alumni networks, use prior bosses or your favorite colleague from your old job. LinkedIn can be a great tool to help almost like jog your memory of people that you knew in college or maybe some project you worked on during the summer. And just being willing to maintain curiosity about the person and what they offer to the world is really, I found that to be really key instead of treating each conversation like it's a transaction. Even if you think that you're going to stay at the same company for like the next 40 years you're going to benefit from working networking into the rhythm of your week. You're going to need mentors. You're going to need clients. Maybe you need to hire a team. So networking can pay off in uh, any number of ways. And, I think that staying sharp with that networking does help you kind of stay mentally in the right place for that time when the recruiter
0: calls. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, you've touched on so many things here. So from tuition and just going back a little bit to what you were mentioning before. And, you know, I think everyone has had, at least at some point in their career, when, you know, something happens and it can be kind of a milestone moment and the easy thing would be to leave right but that's you know that's where the mistakes are made because the magic happens outside of your comfort zone right And so in addition to your intuition, actually, um, a funny thing is I was talking about intuition just yesterday with an upcoming Lady Who Rocks guest, and we were talking about how important it is to listen to yourself because, you know, how many times has, you know, has it happened when you don't listen to yourself and you're wrong? It ends up not working out because you went against your inner grain. And I think that this is especially true early on in, in our careers, you know, the easy way out or the less, or I guess rather the more comfortable option is removing yourself. But really, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice in in many ways, maybe not all the time, but for the most part, you know, you're you're going to grow if you stay, if you work through those challenges. And and in your particular case, it, it ended up really shaping your career. The Other point I really wanted to touch on is the fact that networking is not a dirty word and we have to really recondition ourselves, don't we? I mean, a lot of it is reconditioning or reframing networking. And like you said, it is so critical throughout your career, not just at any one point of your career, but throughout your career. And you, I mean, really you and I, you know, let's be honest and and tell the audience this, you know, this conversation really started with uh, a LinkedIn nudge to you.
1: There are really genuine ways to be able to connect with total strangers, right? There, there are super awkward ways. There are ways that you can be demanding of someone's time but there are also really natural ways to just connect over shared values or maybe shared places that you went to undergrad. I mean, there's lots of ways to build connections, which is what worked for you
0: and I. Absolutely. And Elizabeth, we could go down a rabbit hole here. So I just want to interject just one last thing that, you know, once I think once you detach yourself from a desired outcome, right, which is the common mistake that is made when you think of. Uh, networking, then at the end of the day, it just becomes a conversation. It's as simple as that. And of course, as you know, like one conversation can lead to, you, you know, a, a lifetime of, of conversations. So moving on to the second thing. So I want to touch on, you know, the fact that you have had, you know, somewhat of a colorful or zigzaggy career. So my question to you is, you know, what do you feel were the one or two most impactful events or factors that shaped your career progression and ultimately your success?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And there are some events that we can control, and there are some events that we cannot. So I'll start with the one that I could not control. I graduated from Wharton just a few months before the downturn really took root in New York. And as I like to say, never underestimate the value of a good downturn. I had to learn a whole new set of skills over the following 24 months. And that gave me a deep appreciation for just being curious and not being afraid to learn new things and ultimately for seeing the building blocks of what made previously good companies kind of fall apart. I wasn't doing what I was hired to do for sure but that flexibility and being able to stretch and take on new assignments or try different things or work with different groups within the company made me first of all invaluable to the firm during a downtime in the economy but it also helped me discover my own strengths that I probably wouldn't have I mean I would have eventually discovered them but it maybe would have um, taken a little mm-hmm. longer but the second factor is um, was very much in my control and that was going to business school in the first place I, as you mentioned in the intro, I was a political science major in undergrad. And so I really had to prove myself as a non-traditional applicant uh, and in the classroom. You know, at that time, ESG or mission-aligned investing was like a nice add-on, but it was not a key lens to use in risk management or certainly in corporate governance. So I credit my undergrad with my critical thinking skills, but I had to prove to myself and to others like why i deserve to be in the room and that over the long term taught me to not pay attention to averages you know you hear well the average applicant has xyz background or the average applicant has this on their resume or has been in these places well i'm not average so why try and fit into a check the box set of of criteria i definitely believe that business school isn't for everyone but I always take the opportunity to encourage women to seriously consider it. The flexibility payoff is really huge. I think most of us think about going to business school or grad school, and we think this is exactly what I'm going to do with it afterwards. And that is great. But I I could not have planned in advance beyond the first 10 or 15 years of my career. I could have 20, 30, 40 years it just is a completely different economic landscape and business landscape. There are jobs that are popping up now that didn't exist when I graduated from college, and that will probably continue. So I think the really um, secret weapon of a business school degree is having that flexibility to really take my career where I want it to go and not feel like I'm pigeonholed into a decision I made um, in my 20s.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love this. I love this because because it's not linear and it really forces us to realize that our career is not linear. You know, I mean, that can be really hard for many people because you think, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to get this degree, and then afterwards, I'm going to go work for, you know, whatever your dream company is. And, and just like anything in life, nothing is linear. But like, you know, for some reason, you know, many people really kind of think of their life in a very straight line.
1: And I think in our twenties too, we think that 10 years is a really long time and it is, but it is not, it probably isn't half your career. It probably, it may not even be a third of your career, depending on, you know, how much energy you have or, you know, what, what it is that you end up doing, but you're right. It's really very nonlinear paths. And so what, what I found for me is business school gave me a really broad skill set that I'm able to use and flex and
0: and bend as I need it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you come from a non-traditional background and you do go to school, you end up with a really well-rounded profile because, you know, you think very differently than, you know, the guys that are coming from traditional paths, coming from consulting or investment banking or any other kind of uh, perhaps more finance-focused background. So, You see the world differently because your lens is different, right? And I really liked what you said about how I don't check the boxes. And I'm thinking, yes, yes, we need more of that because I mean that's another form of diversity. And it's what enriches conversation and, you know, what enriches end results. So I really, I I really like that. And, you know, in my, in my position, I I do talk to a lot of candidates that have non-traditional backgrounds. And of course, you know, not every non-traditional background is going to be able to succeed in their targeted area of choice. Because, you know, as I'm sure you know, I mean, it really, it it really does take a special DNA. But the ones that I mean, that's that's the value they bring. I think the, the value that you bring comes from that background and then having that push to really show that, hey, I belong at the table too. Yes,
1: it can be an asset.
0: You know, from my position on talent and recruitment, I, I really see it as a value driver. I can tell you that the candidates that I have placed who have non-traditional backgrounds, have been a players to their organizations they just bring to the table something that their counterparts who of course are you know are good as as well, but it's it's different. it's special and not average, right you don't want to be average. who wants to be average? <laughs> I mean, no one wants to be average. you want to be standout. that's the idea so, you know, kind of piggybacking off of this, uh, of not being average, right? And bringing, you know, more to the table. And I know that you have been able to repeatedly build and lead successful teams. So you obviously come to the table with something really great. So, you know, from, you know, my question is, from your perspective, how do you define success?
1: Well, so you brought up teams, which is one of my favorite subjects. So right after college, I took a job at a bank, and but I had a side gig as well, coaching a college crew team. And so I was up at 5 a.m. on the river by 6 a.m. If you know anything about crew teams, especially in Boston, it was dark and cold Mm -hmm. mornings. But a crew boat has eight rowers and they each have an oar. And then you have the person at the front who steers the coxswain. And then the coach is in a separate boat that has a motor and usually a bullhorn to be able to yell at the crew. So I really found that to be a seminal experience as I think about teams and I think about success because I was never going to win a race. It wasn't about me getting technically better. And in fact, it didn't matter what I did in my own boat. Like I could pull on whatever or I wanted. It was never going to make that boat go faster, right? It was up to them. So where I found success for me was enabling those nine women in that boat to achieve their goals, which was not just about race day. It was also about those incremental changes and improvements that they're making along the way. And I find that that's the basis of what how decent managers and even great leaders think about their own successes. They're always linking it back to the success of the team and thinking about what is going to drive the team forward. So I don't know that I can give a new definition of success. I think many people have said that everyone has their own definition, which is great. But one element for me is that success requires stewardship. The accumulation of degrees or wealth or experience is useless unless I'm willing to put those to work. And maybe reinvestment is a better way to think about it. But I believe why stewardship allows us to have a lasting impact. And that really drives me. Many athletes will describe that moment of flow. So in a boat, when you've got eight people pulling on oars, trying to do it together, they kind of transcend themselves. The sum is greater than the parts. And that is success for me, is being able to enable those moments with a team. I think success is validated when it's shared. And that's another kind of part of stewardship is really broadening um, the
0: experience. Wow, that's a really great example. That's a really, really great example, and I love using sports analogies because I feel like they drive the point so well. And you're absolutely right. The best leaders are the ones where, or who will remove themselves right from the picture, where it's not about me, it's about you, and it's about my people, and how I can make them better. How, how I can elicit the best. From them, an intriguing definition of success is when is when you can elicit the best, and when we put this into our personal context, it gets even more interesting because the same concept applies to our personal lives and our relationships. It, it, it's cliche, you know you you know you'll hear someone who just got engaged, and you know they'll say, "Oh, you know, my partner brings out the best in me," <laughs> and it's super corny, but in many ways, it's very very true. And you know the the best leaders that really know how to extract the best from their team. I mean, they, they get it. They know how to do this. They understand. And, and it's not about burying their weaknesses or, or not acknowledging. No, no, absolutely not. It's, it's, you know, part of it is acknowledging the weaknesses, but acknowledging them and, you know, saying, okay, this is not your strength. So what we need to do is we really need to build up what your strengths are. And doing this in a team setting can really impact the dynamics and ultimately, you know, the success, whether it's the department, the organization, or, you know, the the specific business area. Yeah.
1: No, that that's exactly right. I think that it doesn't mean shying away from an individual's weakness or even a group's weakness. You have to be very kind of have a critical eye on yourself and your team and not be not try and sugarcoat things. But we're all motivated by different things, but most I find that really high performing teams start to be motivated because they feel connected to other people in the team. I mean, that's that's part of why branding can be so powerful.
0: Yes, this is very true. They identify and and like you said, it's that investment. They're vested. And what's really true is that when you do have a really great manager or a great leader, I mean, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. You know, it can be a milestone marker in your career having that influence in your life and shaping your career. There's there's just there's a lot of power with that. So Elizabeth, shifting gears here, and we've kind of touched on this topic throughout the conversation, but you know, you know, I have been a really big proponent of diversity and inclusion. And, you know, I really love talking about women and non-traditional paths and underrepresented kind of demographics within this space. So I want to talk to you about your role as nominating committee chair. And I want you to tell us, what does Beyond DNI mean to you?
1: Boy, this is one of my favorite questions. So I currently chair a nominating committee and I partner with our phenomenal executive director, Gary Clemens. And, you know, I say that up front because I think there is something really important about D&I that is about partnering for your um, audience who obviously can't see me. I am white and In in 2020 and in 2021 and probably in 2022, those of us who are white, who have positions of influence, I think need to be thinking about partnership quite a bit and building partnerships, not just thinking about it, but Board composition is so often thought of as a matrix of skills that are needed, but that really, to me, runs the risk of reducing things to tokenism. I believe you need to build for the organization that you have currently, as well as the organization you plan to have in the future. So it's really less about checking off boxes. And it's about thinking through and thinking with the group and with your committee, What skills do we need at the table in order to better create a growth strategy for two and three or 10 years from now? And frankly, as a white woman, part of that work is very behind the scenes. That doesn't even happen in committees. I have to be broadening my own network. I have to be doing a lot of listening and asking good questions, thinking really critically around power and what power structures uh, have maybe been inherited in, in the organization and, you know, is that good or is that bad or, or how can it be strengthened? I have this analogy that I find very instructive for myself. And I think of as an ally, the road or the journey, because everyone is on a journey and thinking about uh, justice and, and racial justice and, and how that influences and intersects with d Think about it as a getting in a car to go for a car trip and you can read up on your destination. You can get your tunes all set up so you can like plug it in when you're ready to go and rock out to whatever music you like. You can fill the car with gas. You can check and make sure that everything is tuned properly. Maybe you even like invite some people to come along with you for the road trip, but none of that is the same as actually turning the car on. At getting on the road. And I fear that a lot of people and a lot of would-be allies are doing a lot of preparation for the road trip and trying to read all the right books that everybody else is reading. And you know, you do need to prepare for a road trip. So yes, go read the books, but don't substitute that that is the same thing from actually getting turning the car on and building relationships and moving forward in your own journey. You and I have talked about this, but a, a big aha moment that I've had in the past year, as it relates to DNI, is that I don't want to be just talking about the importance of diversity, when i'm with diverse audiences or in diverse rooms i can be talking about it when i'm in all white rooms and actually that might be even more important that it is a more more of a norm to have those conversations so being a vocal advocate for the value of diverse voices and diverse experiences in all white rooms is a new thing that i'm learning to do and learning to do with uh grace and truth as we as we like to say but racism privilege norms executive presence i mean Power tends to use very specific terminology. And so I am learning to push back on those or ask about underlying assumptions. You know, for instance, where does work ethic fit into the skills that we think that we need on a team? The point of any team or board or executive decision makers is not to feel comfortable. So anytime a group looks or feels or starts saying, I'm not comfortable like Well, that's not why you're here. You're mm-hmm. here to make decisions on behalf of the organization. So comfort isn't actually the, the number one priority. Sometimes I am making the case by having a one-on-one conversation and saying, well, we don't know, what we don't know. And just kind of reminding everyone of of having an attitude of humility. And sometimes it's by reminding leaders that exploring methods that feel unfamiliar is really a, about um, having a growth mindset and what leader doesn't want to have a growth mindset or model a growth mindset for the rest of the team or, or organization. I think it's Lauren Taylor-Wolf from Impactive Capital. She talks about the funnel issue and I, I always have a mind towards not just believing that there's excellent talent available right now, but also that we can continue to develop excellent talent down the, uh, down the road, that we should be continually working proactively to help build and support and grow that, that funnel. And I think you and I have talked about this, but you had a similar aha moment. Oh my gosh.
0: I'm almost embarrassed to talk about it. I should say, I guess I should, you know, first and foremost say, okay, I'm not a white woman. (laughs) And I was gently put in my place. It was an incident I had that, you know, I was going to bring it up actually, because I did want to talk about something that I think is, you know, it, it is interesting and we have to kind of have a little bit more, you know, we have to have more conversations around it, which is unconscious bias. And I think that it is important for us to to recognize and we have a lot of work to do and it's not about one gender or group. No, it's all of us. And when you really think of it like that, um, you know, I think everyone to a certain degree has unconscious bias. Um, So to get to kind of my story and call out my unconscious bias, I was talking to a candidate about a role that I was managing. This candidate happened to be a white male who worked at a big four. And normally, if I had been talking to a woman or someone of color, I would have certainly mentioned my clients' diversity and inclusion efforts and you know certainly their position and policy, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it. (laughs) So I just talked about the role. And at the end of our call, he said, you know, I think the role sounds really interesting, but you know, something that's really important to me is diversity. And one of the things that I appreciate uh, and value at my firm is that there's a really big or a very firm position on diversity. So I work with a lot of women. I work with a lot of kind of diverse people. So can you talk to me a little bit more about your client's position on diversity? And so it was at this moment that I realized, oh my gosh, how sexist of me to think that a white man and and even at, you know, like now I'm talking about it, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, maybe this is even borderline racist of me to think that, that to think he wouldn't have as much of a vested interest in learning and knowing about, you know, my client's policy or position on diversity. I, I was actually very humbled by that moment because I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, here I am thinking that I am a champion of, you know, or doing my part to help change the playing field, when in reality, I am part of that problem. So he kind of woke me up a little bit. And I laugh about it now, because I needed to hear that. Because I just, you know, I, I, you just can't assume, never assume. So I, you know, I should never have assumed that this white guy from a big four wouldn't have had that same level of interest. So it was a very kind of humbling moment. And I learned from it. And now, ever since then, I mention it in, in every call or, you know, whenever I have the, the opportunity to talk to, you, to talk about a, you know, a client's position on, on diversity. That is something that uh, I bring up with everyone.
1: It's a great example because it, it just is a good reminder that we're never perfect. We're all learning and that having an attitude of learning isn't a bad thing. It's actually a really, really good thing. And it also is just a little bit of, um, I don't know, it it keeps me humble, uh, if nothing else, when I suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I've been making this assumption or doing this thing for 10 years and it's way out of date or was never a good idea in the first place. Humility kind of goes hand in hand with learning. And I know humility is not like a Typical uh, phrase that we see in descriptions of what we want in the boardroom, but it's uh, or, or really with any executive team. But it is really key to learning how to work well with others and set up a company for long-term success, and that that goes, I think, well beyond DNI initiatives as well.
0: I know, and recognizing when we're at fault, you know, that's especially recognizing that we perhaps have been wrong for a long time. (laughs) That's hard. You know, I like in your response, you, you touch on many, many different things. But I think, you know, it bottles down to the fact that we do have a lot of work to do we have to be in that learning mindset and and that growth mindset. It's so important. We should never stop growing and and we should never stop learning. and, And, you know, it's, we should all strive to be better. So, you know, this, this kind of brings me to my last question and, and really piggybacks off of this previous question. So, you know, Elizabeth, in, in your opinion, how do you think one can influence change or, or be a champion of diversity and inclusion at an individual contributor level?
1: Yeah, so one of my great strengths, or at least I think it's a strength, um, and it's rooted in my finance training, is to challenge assumptions, right? Groupthink is not wise when it comes to structuring a financial transaction or a leadership team Or boardrooms. So I really exercise that muscle in challenging assumptions about what or who contributes to success, what expands our strategic reach. Sometimes I challenge assumptions on a one on one basis, kind of privately, so I can really engage in a conversation. And sometimes I can do it in a more corporate environment. I took a two-day session with a rock star life planner and therapist, Chanel Doku, and I can't say enough about her and the value of the work that she does. But she uses a Venn diagram to illustrate three overlapping areas each person has, heart, talent, and influence. And for me, I was brought up to value my heart and to think about how deeply I'm connected to things. My schooling taught me to value my talents and to grow my talents. But influence was this kind of murky area for me that took me a long time to connect why and how um, I had and the importance of using my influence and and privilege where I have it. And I think that this is a key piece to the question that you asked. It's much easier to think about how, or at least it was easier for me to think about how I might influence influence conversations or real change around diversity when i had a certain title or 10 years from now when i'm doing whatever but the reality is is that i have influence i've had influence all along and i have influence right now and and i think that is a key kind of mental shift to be thinking about where do I have influence and how can I be using my voice immediately? So denying influence denies me the opportunity to use my voice. And it also denies me the, the opportunity to hear from other people and realize that that influence is, is a two-way street. So I just really encourage thinking about influence rather than assuming that we have to wait to get influence. Start by assuming that you have influence now. And yes, there will be bigger microphones and there will be bigger audiences or there'll be smaller audiences. but it's everyone starts with having influence um, pretty, pretty immediately and and that shouldn't be underestimated.
0: Yes, and I think you're absolutely right. you're and we don't really think about that. We're never really taught to think in that manner, right? I mean, You're so right. When we put it into our personal context, so for example, our children, our children have a tremendous amount of influence on us. They influence the dynamic of the house, they influence your relationship. You know, in this context, they influence the relationships that surround them. So with their siblings, their grandparents, et cetera, and vice versa. We, in turn, we influence our friends, our colleagues, but we don't really think about it in that way. Or at least, you know, I, I guess I I never really did. So it's really understanding that you do have the power. And, And this kind of makes me think of a really interesting quote that I heard from um, someone that I saw, uh, she's a partner at a firm, and I'll, I'm going to research it and look to include it on on the link, include a link here on, on the site. But she said something really interesting. And she said, you know, basically, we don't use the word empower in my firm, because to use the word empower implies that you never had power to begin with. So we choose not to say empower. Instead, we say, use your power. And it got me thinking, uh, it really resonated with me about that word. um, Because it does, I do think, you know, when I really think about it, it does carry with that, you know, a certain implication that someone has to give you power first. But, you know, in reality, we each have our own power. And, you know, that's why I've been telling everyone that I know, basically, <laughs> that I have become increasingly frustrated by the lack of women and diversity in PE. And as you know, I mean, it's it's, of course, it's a slow process. But you know, on my end, at the individual contributor level, it's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. I've been committed to talking to women and not just women, of course, it's it's about inclusivity. And this doesn't just mean one specific group. It's about leveling the playing field for For everyone, for others, you know, so who who might be listening, who find it hard to think of what what can I do besides <laughs> besides read the books? Because that, of course, that's important too. But how can I use my power to help shape careers? And on the flip side, helping to shape the path of a team or a company. So, you know, my commitment is to help these groups have a bigger presence in this space. And having this podcast, I think, is another very humbling aspect of my career because I learned so much from these conversations and, you know, it helps me to open my mind and, and really listen and learn. And, um, and like we've discussed, it's, you know, that can be a really hard part, um, a really hard thing to do.
1: It is hard to do. And, th- but that's what makes us stronger, right?
0: Definitely. Definitely.
1: I, I think probably if we took a magical poll of a thousand office workers in the past year, They've learned that continuous learning and flexibility are really
0: core pieces of resiliency,
1: right? I keep joking, like I'm done with that lesson. I want to move on.
0: Yes. Oh my gosh, that probably is the silver lining of this year. I mean, it's really forced us to look at things in a different way. Um, That is, it is very, you know, that's so true. Um, so Elizabeth, Elizabeth, I feel like you have provided such great insights. Our conversation has been so enriching. And I feel like we could probably continue talking for at least another hour about all these different topics. You know that m- my intention with Ladies Who Rock is to inspire others with an interest in PE and especially especially those with non-traditional backgrounds. And as you know, I really, really push for that, you know, but it's about, you know, learning from all these really great women who have been able to kind of walk ahead and clear the path for, you know, those to come. And, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Progress is not equivalent to parody. Um, Another really great quote that I I heard. So, um, (laughs) so I really want to thank you for taking the stage, sharing your story, your opinion, your advice. You're a great example of a rock star and you are absolutely delightful. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Take the Stage and our special series, Ladies Who Rock. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Elizabeth Wadsworth. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. If you're a company or candidate who would like to work with career Rockstars, reach out on LinkedIn or send an email to alexis at career-rockstars.com. Thanks again, and until next time.